Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brendan will be teaching out of the book of Matthew. As we know, many of you know this, we talk about it. We talk about unconditional love. We talk about agape love. It means a love that has no conditions. It's an unconditional love. It is not rooted in feeling. Feelings that can change, right? This kind of love is known as agape love. And it is a love that is rooted in choice. A choice to do something, sometimes even when it's difficult, because we know that Jesus doesn't call us to things that are easy. He calls us to things that are difficult, but praise God for the fact that He says, my yoke is easy, so when it's hard, come to me, I'll make it easy for you. It's a love, this, this love, this agape love, is a love that's rooted in action. Not just, not just words, it's about action. It's a love that seeks the well-being of others regardless of their response. It is a selfless love. And the greatest demonstration of which was shown to us, of course, through the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is this same love that we are called to demonstrate both in response to that work and to Him, and that we're called to demonstrate also toward one another. It's, it's fitting that we would consider such love today, as, as Krista prayed even, because after all, today is February 14th, right? Which to some means that it's just the 14th day of February. <laughs> That's some of you, right? And, and, well, for Tara in the sound booth, it means it's her birthday today. So, happy birthday to Tara. She's so happy that I said that right now. And, of course, then to Minnie, it is Valentine's Day. This special day to celebrate love. A day to show that special someone in your life that uh, you love them. Often with a valentine, a card of sorts, and perhaps some flowers or candy. People have their different ways. But I'll tell you this much, and I think we know this, that the love that is oftentimes celebrated on this day is, is not agape love. You see, the Greek language does a wonderful thing that our English language does not when it comes to words like love. Recognizing there are different types of love and, and ways that we love, the Greek language gives us different words. Agape love is the greatest form of love in that once again it's not rooted in feeling it's it's truly selfless as opposed to say for example phileo love which is a, a brotherly love or a friendly love not a, not a bad love but certainly not agape love or there's a, what's called storge love this is a love that's rooted in in family it's it's a familiar kind of love and and then there's eros love that is more of an erotic love that's it's rooted in attraction and, and then there's pragma love, which is really about a, a love for self. And, and, and I could go on, there's even more words for love within the Greek language. You see, the Greeks knew that there needed to be different words to express these different forms of love, in part because how could you love your neighbor the same way that you love yourself? Indeed, that is a difficult question if we really consider it. 
Yet, as we continue our study in the Gospel of Matthew today, and we'll be in Matthew 22, if you want to turn in your Bibles there, in Matthew chapter 22, we come to a statement today made by Jesus that was uh, discussed or considered there in that brief video. We come to this statement made by Jesus. It's really a simple answer to a question, but it's an answer that's truly profound. One could argue that it is, in fact, one of the most important statements that Jesus ever makes in terms of giving us understanding of our faith and how to live it out. And what we discover in this statement is that though there are different words for different types of love, that in this statement, this statement of love God and love of neighbor and love of self, that it's all the same. There is no different word depending on the different individual. It's all agape love. Selfless, unconditional, action-oriented love towards God and towards your neighbor. No exception. And so it is fitting here on this Sunday, February 14th here at CCNE that we are kicking off something called Love Your Neighbor Week. A week geared toward learning more about outreach and missions and how we as a local representation of the body of Christ can better love and serve our neighbors. And so let's jump in this morning to what I believe the Lord has for us. If you'd pray with me once more as we begin. Father, we pause once more as we look to your word here now. Your word which I pray each and every one of us treasures and is so grateful for. And we ask Father, that you would bless our time together and that by your Spirit you would give us understanding of your Word here today and help us to once again take what, if we really, Lord, consider it, if we truly consider the depths of it, Lord, that it is a difficult passage. Nevertheless, not one, Lord, that we can ignore, nor is it one that's impossible for us to obtain. For with you all things are possible. And so, Lord, help us to receive it here this morning, to apply it to our lives bring change, we ask, into our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we pick back up here in Matthew 22, we find ourselves in verse 15 this morning. I want us to remember that at this point, Jesus is in the temple. He has made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem during the week of Passover. He first, when he came in, he came into the temple. He flipped some tables. He began cleaning house in the temple. And then he left for the evening to return the next morning to continue cleaning house. Doing so in the form of what I will call a verbal boxing match of sorts with the scribes and the Pharisees. And that will continue here in verse 15 all the way through the beginning of chapter 24 when Jesus will leave the temple. Now what we will see in this section today are three more questions that are brought to Jesus. You could say that it's the religious leader's attempt to return some of the jabs, but every time Jesus continues to to bob and weave, if you will, landing blow after blow against these religious leaders. Every time exposing more and more of this struggle on the part of many to understand Scripture. Their struggle to truly see and to submit to authority and it's a common struggle still today and as we consider the topic of love here today I think that we 
what we see on the part of Jesus' opponents is a deep love. It's not that they don't love, but they love the wrong things. They have a love for self. They have a love for the law and the works of the law, which makes for the appearance of someone who gets it and who has it all together, but they are far from understanding They, as Jesus has showed us earlier from our study last week, they are as fig trees with leaves, but no fruit. And Jesus is beginning to expose this in front of many. And we read here in verse 15, it says, Then the Pharisees went, so they left for a period of time, and they plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. You see, having been knocked down a few times, now they continue to plot how they might trip him up and turn the people against him. Of course, what they don't understand is that it's not long after this that Jesus will willingly give himself into their hands. But they go up to him to continue this this argument. But given their battle wounds, they this time send in the backups as well as some members of a rival team to do their dirty work. In verse 16, we read, and they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians. You see, you know that their hatred for Jesus ran deep when they teamed up with the Herodians, followers of King Herod. They didn't agree on anything except for their hatred of Jesus. And so they team up in an attempt to take him down, saying to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth, nor do you care about anyone for you do not regard the person of men. You see, they attempt here to flatter Jesus, to draw him in with flattery. And the fact is, their statements about him are absolutely true. He is a teacher of truth. He does not care about the opinions of other men, but their efforts do nothing to entice Jesus as they ask him their question in verse 17. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? You see, they were bent on trying to come up with a question that was going to entrap him, that was going to cause him to respond in a way that turned someone against him. And it's an interesting question here, a question on taxes. It seemingly comes out of nowhere. Why this question? Well, you see, the people here, they they owed taxes to Rome. The tax in question, as a matter of fact, was called a poll tax. Not P-O-L-E, but P-O-L-L, a poll tax. And it was a denarius per person per year. But you see, amongst them were those who were in favor of the tax, the Herodians, as well as the Jewish leaders who were opposed to the taxes. So one way or the other, Jesus is going to offend someone, right? And, And for crying out loud, here we are. It's the beginning of 2021. What are some of you in the process of preparing for? Your taxes, right? Your taxes. And, and wouldn't you be somewhat intrigued in understanding what is Jesus going to say here? Is he going to say you don't have to pay taxes? It's not lawful to pay taxes? And if he does say so, would you find yourself emboldened to say, well, I'm not going to pay mine either, right? We find ourselves curious of similar things. But Jesus here, verse 18, perceived their wickedness, and he says, why do you test me, you hypocrites? That's a strong word to use. Even today in our language, if you were to call somebody a hypocrite, you know that they're going to be offended by that. And this is far from the first time that Jesus has used the word hypocrite, and it won't be the last. In fact, come on out next Sunday for chapter 23, and you'll see him or hear him call them hypocrites over and over and over again. And what does hypocrite mean? 
He says, you posers, you fakes, you pretenders, you actors. He says, you're not what you pretend to be. And nevertheless, he says to them, you hypocrites, show me the tax money. And so they brought him a denarius. And in verse 20, and he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Without thinking, they, they respond, it's, well, it's Caesar's. And he says to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. You see, they show him the money, and on one side of the money is an image of Caesar himself, and on the other side it says, essentially, this belongs to the divine leader of Rome. And so as he shows them this, he then says to them, it belongs to him. It's not even yours anyhow. Just give it back to him. Render, therefore, to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Now, here's the thing. Jesus could stop right there. He could stop right there. He's answered their question. But he adds one more comment for our benefit. As he says, and to God the things that are God's. What's the implication here? If the image of Caesar on the money means that it belongs to him, no different than our money today. We like to think it's our money. We've worked hard for the money. It gets put into your bank account. You have, but at the end of the day, it, does it say it's your money? Does it have your name written on it? It's got a picture of a president on it. It has the United States of America. It's got U.S. Treasury. It's the, it's the government's money. And if you want more of it, they print more of it. That's how it all, that's how it all goes, Right? It ultimately belongs to them. And you're finding that out here at the beginning of the year as you pay your taxes. So he says, look at it. If the image that's on it indicates who owns it, and because of that, you ought to be willing to just give it back to them, well then let me ask you this morning, what image is on you? Friends, you are an image bearer of God. Whether or not you have given your life to Christ, whether or not you have recognized that He is your Lord and Savior, it does not change the fact that He made you. That He created you in His image. And because of that, you bear His image. And Jesus says here, and render things that are God to God's. That means your life belongs to Him. It belongs to him. Give Caesar what's his. Give God what's his. Give him your life. And when they heard these things, verse 22, they marveled and left him and went their way. See the second string Pharisees and their Herodian alliance leave. And here comes the next round. And verse 23, in the same day, the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection... This is a smaller group. The Sadducees, you don't hear as much about them as you do the Pharisees. It's a smaller group of religious leaders. They too are a part of the Sanhedrin. And they were typically quite wealthy. They were very politically involved. And they taught that there was no resurrection. They, putting emphasis on the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, they see within that no evidence to them uh, of life after death. This is why, listen, this is why they were sad, you see. You're not going to forget it now, okay? Whenever you needed to say, which, which one? Pharisees or Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. The ones that were sad, like no, nothing, after, nothing after death? They were sad, you see, okay? There you go. <clears throat> they came to him and they asked him, verse 24, saying, Teacher, 
Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. And likewise, the second also, and the third, and even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, verse 28, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. You can only imagine them in this moment going, ha, 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 we got him now, right? The, the, the situation is quite preposterous. And the fact of the matter is, they're not even interested so much in hearing the answer to the question. They just want to prove their point. They hear referencing Moses' instruction from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 6, which is called a leveret marriage. This is, a, this is something that, that, that Moses instituted. Uh, they ask this all in an attempt really to mock this idea of resurrection and discredit Jesus. That's their aim. Jesus answers them in verse 29 and says, You are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. And so he says to them, first, your, your question reveals your ignorance. You don't really understand how this works. For the way, uh, for the way life is here now is not necessarily the way that it will be in heaven. And that is a truth that we have to come to terms with here. I know this is often a passage of Scripture that makes people sad as they think, no marriage in heaven, no, no relationship there that I've enjoyed here on earth. And the fact of the matter is, Scripture says no. Now, we don't know much more about this. We don't really understand then what exactly these relationships will be like. But what we do know, what Scripture tells us, is that it's going to be better. It's going to be better than anything we've experienced here on earth, and so we needn't fear or worry. And so Jesus says, you don't, you don't get it. You're not understanding. But then he takes it a step further, as Jesus always does, answering the question that they were really asking. In verse 31, But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. What he says to them is, you say you're all about the Torah, and you don't think it says anything about the resurrection, but what of a God who says, I am alive, and I am the God of those who are supposedly dead. It's not that God is saying that I, I was their God. He's saying, I am their God, presently, still today. And so the bigger picture for us now, friends, is that as we're sitting here, is that Jesus has, has, has now said, one, you're made in the image of God. His image is on you, and so that means that you belong to Him. And so render to Him what is His. And also know this, that a God who is alive means that He wants for you to have eternal life. He wants to be your God forever, not just in this life. So here Jesus lands another punch, no surprise, and then here comes the next round again. And folks, this is an important round. In verse 34, But when the Pharisees heard that He had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked Him a question testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? 
So the Pharisees here, they picked up the phone and dialed nines, right? And brought a lawyer. No, he's not that kind of lawyer, okay? This means that they brought an expert in God's law. They brought a scribe, one who knew the law well, who certainly, right, could trip up the incarnate word of God. Not at all. So he comes and he asks Jesus, he says, teacher, why don't you sum up the law for us? That is, what is the fundamental premise of the law? How do you summarize all 613 rabbinical laws? What's the most important thing? And, and so you see, when we get a sense really of what he's asking here, for Jesus to answer this question means we got to pay attention. If Jesus here is going to take all of the law, and summarize it, say this is the most important thing, we as Christians today need to tune in. And what happens here also is that this question leads to an answer that begins to bring this match to its inevitable close, to the knockout, if you will, which is coming quickly as Jesus responds in what are two inextricable parts, saying first in verse 37, Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. Jesus' answer to this question begins with love God. But not just love God. No, he's saying love him with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind. He's saying with, with all of you, with everything that you are, love God. You see, Jesus here quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, and this is called the Shema. Now this is something that every Jewish person would know. The most devout would take this verse, take this passage, and they would put it in something called a phylactery, and they would bind it around their heads so that it was sitting on their foreheads. They would bind it on their arms when they prayed. It would be there displayed in their houses. It would be on their doorsteps in, in these little boxes. It would not come as a surprise to hear Jesus say this. I want to read it for you. In Deuteronomy, beginning in chapter 6, verse 1, it says, now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God, to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you, you and your son and your grandson all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Therefore hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You see, no doubt, as they were hearing Jesus say this, they were familiar. Many of them probably thought that this is exactly how he would respond. But what they did not likely expect to hear was what followed next in verse 39. And the second is like it. 
you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Jesus now quotes from Leviticus 19 verse 18 regarding love your neighbor. And until Jesus, these two had never been linked together. And they aren't just two commands that are important, but rather they are linked, intertwined, inseparable. Jesus says that on on these two things, all the law and the prophets hang. It's as if here that the picture frame of God's law has two hooks on it on either side. And it will not stay on the wall. It will not hang balanced unless both hooks are supported. Both are necessary to fulfill this. Now we've got to break this down then to fully understand it. Jesus says first, love God. Well, what kind of love? You might have expected it already. I mentioned it earlier. It's the Greek word. In this case, the tense translates agapao. This is agape love. Unconditional love. No exception. Not rooted in feeling. It's about action. And it's love for God from every bit of who you are. All of you. Your heart, your soul, your mind. You give every part of yourself to Him. Why? Because Scripture compels us to. In 1 John 4.11, John writes, we love because He first loved us. He loved us first. He loved you first. Even when you were a sinner. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, Paul says that, that Christ died for us. Even when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, He sought your well-being even when your response was rejection. And so it begins here. This, this is where it starts. On the vertical. Love for God. That comes first. But there were some who would then say that that's all that there is. That I just need to love God. That I just need to pursue God. That I just need to pursue the vertical. There's people who escape from culture, who escape from society, just to spend time pursuing love of God and disregarding love of neighbor. You need to pursue the vertical. And indeed, you must have that in order to love your neighbor. But the two cannot be separated. Consider for a moment uh, Luke chapter 10, beginning in, in verse 30, a man, asks, uh, a man asks Luke, in Luke chapter 10, a, a man asks Jesus, he says, and who is my neighbor? You see, that's a good question for us. Who, who is our neighbor? If these two things cannot be separated, well then, who ultimately is our neighbor? And you're familiar with this passage, no doubt. Jesus responds in verse 30, answering and saying, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had, com- he had compassion. And so he went to him and bandaged his wounds and pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him 
And whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, he who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. You see, the first two, the priest and and the Levite, no doubt they would say they had love for God. In fact, it was likely a sense of such duty. It was perhaps their love for God that caused them to pass by. Maybe they were on their way to do something that they needed to do. Maybe they were on their way to making uh, their way to the temple or to a service. Maybe they needed to get to church and, and to be in church for the various aspects of fellowship or the different things that were happening. But their unwillingness to serve their neighbor showed that they really did not love God. Friends, do you love God? Do we love God? Do you love Him with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind? As as Luke 10 says earlier, all of your strength. Do you love Him with all of you? This is agape love, that we are to love Him with no exceptions. And some might say, well, if I give it all to Him, what do I have left? And that's the beauty of getting the vertical right, of getting the relationship with Jesus right, starting with Him, because then from there it miraculously flows out to everyone else. So that part two, you love your neighbor as yourself. And here's the thing, the word for love doesn't change. It doesn't become phileo love. It doesn't become storge love. It's not a friendship, it's not familial, it's not familiar It's unconditional love, even of those who you don't know, who may not respond favorably to you, who may curse you and persecute you. It's the same love. And it says, as yourself, love them as yourself. What does that mean? Because, you know, a lot of people will say, hey, well, I don't love myself very much. Or there's a lot of people in the world today that just really don't love, them, so love themselves very much. And, and this is true. We've really got an issue today. But here's the thing. It's still a twisted sort of love that's happening when someone's not fond of themselves. Because make no mistake about it, whether they think highly of themselves or little of themselves, they're still thinking about themselves. You're still really focused on you. And so it really is about taking that intensity of focus on ourselves and putting it on others. And then there's others who will say, oh, you, well, you can't love unless you love yourself. That's garbage. Hey, that's New Age philosophy. That's not rooted in a right understanding of love for God. And, and it's much of what has us in this mess today because people are too busy staring at their own navels all day long trying to find enlightenment and everything else. And I need some time for me. And I'm not saying that there's not, I mean, listen, Jesus gives us permission to rest, okay? Please understand me. We absolutely need to have time to rest. But enough of this, I need, it's about me and I need to do things for me. Jesus said, love God and love others as yourself. And so then when we are understanding this love rightly, including love of self, what we know is that it, it's an action love. We've already discussed this. It's not rooted in feeling. It's mean, it, what it means is that we, we do what is necessary. To, when we think about loving ourselves, if it's an action-oriented love, it means that we do on a daily basis what we need to do to care for ourselves, to keep ourselves alive. It means we meet our needs. And that's what we're to do with our neighbors. James writes in James chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? 
Is that truly love? You know, Paul writes in Romans 13.10, love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And you see, all the law and the prophets hangs on these two things. They are both necessary. And, and I can't help but think of that time when you see somebody, you see someone in need, you see a neighbor in need. And when we say neighbor, I'm not just talking about, as we well know, the person to the right or the left of your house, but anybody who's in need. And it's on a regular basis right here. Chances are when you walk out of this building between here and wherever you're going, you're going to see somebody in need. What is your thought towards them? What is your feeling towards them? I'm not trying to be condemning today because I've had plenty of wrong thoughts and wrong feelings towards those in our community who are in need. But if I take Scripture seriously, what I need to evaluate when I look at that person and I think to myself, I'm not helping you. You got yourself into this mess. You'll only use it to buy this or to do this. And I convince myself of all the various reasons why I do not need to engage with such an individual. What I am only revealing there is that my love for God is not right. Do you want to love your neighbor? Do you struggle with loving your neighbor? If so, then your love for God is not where it needs to be. And you know, it's an interesting thing, the cross of Christ, the picture that it gives us. You know, to have the cross, you need the vertical. You need, first and foremost, that vertical relationship with Jesus Christ. If you don't have that, you don't get the horizontal. But if you don't have the horizontal, you don't have the cross. To have the cross of Christ, to understand the cross of Christ, is to have right love of God and right love of neighbor. It's these two that sum up the law of God according to Jesus. And it's interesting at this point if, if, if someone don't want to take this seriously, right? Because look at where Jesus goes from here. It's at this point that Jesus has landed blow after blow. And here now, without, without a returning punch, he seeks to knock his opponents down in verse 41 while the Pharisees were gathered together. So here they're here listening to him. Jesus asks them a question. He looks to them and he says, he says, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, rightly here, they, they quickly respond, the son of David. You see, the son of David. And he said to them, verse 43, how then? Does David in the Spirit call him Lord? Saying, and he quotes from the psalm here, Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, this is David writing in Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus then asks them, verse 45, if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? Jesus here brings all of this, at the end of all of this, he brings it back to the very important question, looking to the Pharisees, he, Pharisees, he asks, what do you think of the Christ? That's what this is about. What do you think? Well, look, remember what he had asked uh, his disciples uh, many weeks before this. Who do people say that I am? He looks at them, what do you say of the Christ? And after all of this, this is what it's about. And so exposing their ignorance, pulling from Scripture, he says, who is he, the son? Who is he the son of? And their quick response is the son of David. But as Jesus asks, how then does the father call the son Lord? How does that happen? How does that work? And they recognize that something doesn't make sense. They've been missing something. In his commentary by John Chrysostom states, in this moment, Jesus is quietly leading them to the point of confessing that he is God. The very one for whom they are to love is standing right in front of them. And in verse 46, no one was able to answer him a word 
nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. If we love God, then we must love Jesus. And as we pour ourselves out in love for him, soul, mind, body, strength, meaning we expend our energy and our resources and our time and our talents in demonstration of love for Him that must then lead to love for others. That we would desire, that we would desire Christ so much that we would want to do what He commands us to do in loving our neighbor. And as I mentioned earlier in chapter 23, as Jesus continues in the temple, no more questions will be asked of him. Jesus will simply unleash the severest series of indictments yet upon the Pharisees. As over and over he will expose their hypocrisy. But, as we close here this morning, lest we get too excited about Jesus giving the Pharisees what we think they deserve might we consider first if we fit the same mold. It is very easy for us today to become what I would call accidental Pharisees. To, like the Pharisees, draw very near to Him with our mouths, but in our hearts be far from Him. And to not feel that way necessarily, to think, yes, here we are along the road going to church and doing our different things, our different activities, but yet someone on the other side of the road is in need and we just kind of go a little bit further over and pass on by and pretend like we never saw it. And I am not suggesting to you that there aren't times when we seek to serve other people and it won't go well or it won't be received or that there's times when we need to love and serve a little bit differently. It's not always about putting a dollar in somebody's pocket. But what it absolutely means is that we are called to serve our community. We're called to serve our neighbors. We're called to love them. And when we don't, and when we don't feel like it, when we feel like we just don't have it, we don't have what it takes to show them compassion and to show them kindness, rather than giving ourselves a break, what we need to say is, man, my love on the vertical just isn't right. And to bring ourselves back to Jesus and to say, Jesus, would you transform my heart? Would you transform my mind? Would you transform me, Lord? Would you help me to show compassion? Would you help me to have understanding? Would you do a work in me, Lord, such that I would be able to demonstrate the love with which you have loved me towards my neighbor? Amen? Throughout this upcoming week, you're going to have multiple opportunities to do that practically and even to learn a little bit more, to dive a little bit deeper, especially on Wednesday and Thursday night into what some in our very own community are going through, things that I guarantee you, you may know a lot. You may, some of the stuff may be familiar to you. You've heard it before, and there's going to be other things that you're going to hear and you're going to learn that are going to challenge you, I promise you. It's going to challenge the way that you think. It's going to challenge the way that you look at situations. But in the end, it's intended to rot change within you that causes you to have greater love for others. And when we do that, we are then demonstrating great love of God. They're both connected. I'm going to invite the worship team up to close us out in a short song. If you just agree with me in prayer. Father, we, we are so grateful, Lord, once again to gather in this place here today. And Lord, I'll just speak for myself in this moment that, Lord, I know there are far too many times, Lord, where I convince myself of all the things that I do for you so that, Lord, I can overlook some other things that I'm uncomfortable with. And Lord, that's pharisaical and I know it. Lord, there's far too many times where I don't love 
others, Lord, the way that you've loved me, and I'm sorry. Lord, I repent of it, and I ask, Lord, that you would change my heart. Lord, help me first and foremost to learn to love you with every bit of who I am, to pour out, as the woman we'll see eventually here in the Gospel of Matthew, to take that, that, that oil, that fragrance. Lord, a year's salary is what it costs. And so with great sacrifice, she poured it out upon you, Lord. And you said that it was good, Lord, that we too would learn to pour ourselves out like that. And in so doing, Lord, that we would begin to see changes in our hearts, Lord, towards those who are around us. And that we trust, Lord, that though, yes, it requires great sacrifice, that, Lord, you will sustain it. You will provide for it, Lord. That you will use us, Lord, to be your hands and feet to reach a world that is lost and dying and perishing with the truth of the gospel demonstrated through love. Father, do that work in us, Lord, I pray. We pray also for the week ahead, Lord, that in the various interactions we have and the opportunities we have to serve and the, and the times we have to learn, Lord, that you would move and work, that at the end of this week, Lord, many of us, if not all of us, Lord, could say, yes, Lord, you've done a work in my heart. Thank you. Father, we ask for that in faith. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.